Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. How Hermetic Was Renaissance Hermetism? By Voter J. Hanegraaff. Abstract. Based upon key publications by Paul Oscar Christeller, 1938, and especially Francis A. Yeats, 1964, it has been widely assumed that an important hermetic tradition emerged during the Renaissance and that Marsilio Ficino's Latin translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, 1st edition, 1471, was at its origin. This article argues that these assumptions need to be revised. Close study of Ficino's original translation on the basis of Mauricio Campanelli's recent reconstruction and critical edition, published in 2011, makes it questionable whether Ficino understood much of the Hermetic message at all. And the famous unauthorized first edition of the Pymander, 1471, turns out to be corrupt in many crucial respects, leading to a long series of defective editions that obscured the actual contents of the Corpus Hermeticum for Renaissance readers. Hence, we seem to be dealing with a Renaissance discourse about Hermes, but hardly with a Hermetic tradition in any meaningful sense of the word. This is a continuation, in a sense, of the uh, line of thinking that we covered in the last article, which uh, Dr. Honograph has been pioneering in the academic field of esotericism for our better understanding. This article is based upon a lecture given at the Warburg Institute in London on 19th of March 2014, and the author has a note thanking Jean-Pierre Brach, Roloff van der Broek, Joyce Pijnenberg, and Maurizio Campanelli for their critical comments on an earlier version of this article. He says he's also grateful to Francis Janssen for an important correction He says, I would also like to acknowledge the Bibliotheca Philosophica Hermetica of Amsterdam for its unique facilities that made it possible to physically compare all the available editions and translations of the Corpus Hermeticum. The the Latin translation of the Corpus Hermeticum by Marsilio Ficino, 1433-1499, was an event of considerable historical importance, has been known to Renaissance historians since 1938, 
when Paul Oscar Christeller first put it on the agenda in a seminal article in Italian, based on his then-recently-completed Supplementum Ficinianum researches. To the wider public, it has been known since 1964, when Francis A. Yates brought the Hermetic tradition to the attention of a mass audience by means of her much-noted book on Giordano Bruno. Since then, and up to the very present, a steadily growing number of publications have been referring to Renaissance Hermeticism, or the Hermetic tradition of the Renaissance, as an important dimension of early modern religion and philosophy. However, it has long been known to specialists that these concepts are, are extremely questionable for a combination of reasons that largely result from Ye Francis Yates' popular influence. So, let us begin to briefly summarize these problems. Also, um, another note, for, for instance, Merkel and Debus' Hermeticism and Renaissance, Vanderbroek and Hanegraaff, Gnosis and Hermeticism, Van den Broek and Van Hertem, From Poimanders to Jacob Burma, Quispel, Die Hermetische Gnosis, Gentile and Gilly, Marsili Ficina and the Return of Hermistra's Magistus, Gilly and Van Hertem, Magic, Alchemy, and Science, 15th to 18th centuries, The Influence of Hermistra's Magistus, Treplin Lehmann, Antike, Weisheit und Kulturelle Praxis, Hermetismus in der frühen Neuzeit, Molsau, Das Ende des Hermetismus, Lucentini, Pari and Peroni Campani, Hermetism from Late Antiquity to Humanism, Kaminsky, Dru und Hermann, Hermetique, Abeling, Secret History of Hermistris Magistus, Morashini, Hermes Christianus, Alt and Wells, Concepte des Hermetismus, Alt Imaginäre, Geheimwissen, Untersuchungen zum Hermetismus. <clears throat> I know that's a crazy long list of books, but some of these sort of notes are, I think, the most important for us in the practical spiritual realms of Hermeticism to consider. We need to hear this because there's so many books that keep coming out in our field that are just regurgitating the same sources and the same uh, interpretations over and over again without us often becoming aware in the mainstream of this practice that so much work has been done and is uh, is really a wealthy <laughs> wealth of field of uh, scholarship for us to delve into. This is a, a lot of really good material. I haven't even looked at some of it. Um, there's a lot. So um, before you make maybe a, your final decisions on how you think all these things play out or what these traditions are, especially the ones that we find ourselves a spiritual home in, you know, maybe just go check, a, check st more stuff out. As another note here, for detailed discussions on the points in the next section with proper reference to many scholars who have contributed to the debate over the half-century since Yeats' book on Bruno, see Honograph, Esotericism, and the Academy. Also see Beyond the Yeats' Paradigm, Le Fin de la Tradition Hermetique, and Lodovico Lazzarelli and the Hermetic Christ. That's actually one I've been meaning to read. I have also made the argument in a webinar format available as The Revival of Platonic Orientalism, and that is on YouTube. I might link that for you. And The Real Hermetic Tradition, also on YouTube. Yeah, I'll link those up for you. All right, moving forward, part one. From, Hermit from Hermeticism 
to hermetism. A first problem is that none of the central figures in Yeats's grand narrative, Marsilio Vicino, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Giordano Bruno, can be convincingly described as hermeticists, while those for whom hermetism was, in fact, central, notably Lodovico Lazzarelli and arguably Cornelius Agrippa, were marginalized and discredited by her. In short, what Yeats calls the hermetic tradition can hardly be called hermetic at all, insofar as we can speak of a real hermetic tradition. Her book did everything to conceal its presence while replacing it with something else that did not fit the label. To prevent any misunderstandings, there is certainly no reason to suspect Yeats of any conscious attempt at misleading her readers. Rather, as a typical pioneer, she seems to have been carried away by excitement about her discoveries and systematic questions concerning issues of terminology, definition, and demarcation just do not seem to have occurred to her at the time. The second problem is that Yeats presented Hermeticism as deeply grounded in astral magic. And remember that this means planetary, not uh, in the sense that it's often used today. This allowed her to make sensational claims about magic leading to science that went against the grain of current assumptions among historians of science and caused great controversy in the academic climate of the 1960s and 70s. However, although Ficino's 1471 translation of the Corpus Hermeticum was supposed to stand at the origin of this entire revival of hermetic magic, it so happens that it contains nothing that by any definition could be construed as magical at all. Few readers notice how skillfully Yeats manipulated them, and probably herself as well, into perceiving hermeticism as thoroughly magical. By means of a pervasive overemphasis on the Picatrix, and notably a few short passages from the Aschlepius that were concerned with the animation of statues, her argument is seriously undermined by the fact that precisely those texts had been known throughout the Middle Ages, and the notorious God-making passages had been highlighted and discussed at length from Augustine to William of Alverne and beyond. Note on this precise point, see Honograph, Esotericism, and the Academy, um, chapters 11 through 18 of that source text are quoted rarely or not at all by uh, the Aschlepius. That is, um, only uh, CH1 is quoted uh, 24 times in the text, mostly in chapter 3 and 3 times in footnotes. For the Picatrix, these numbers are 23 and 17, but for the Aschlepius, they are 80 and 29. Of those, 80, at least 45, are not are to the passages of, on the animation of statues, and this number would expand considerably if one were to add the multiple references to, for example, God-making idolatry and bad magic. In short, what was new in the Renaissance, the Corpus Hermeticum, was not magical, and what could be construed as magical, the Picatrix and Aschlepius, was not new. Of course, this does not mean that Renaissance magic is not a real phenomenon. It just means that there is nothing specifically hermetic about it. I think this is such a fascinating point. I remember this when this article came out, it was just such a, a mind-blower, though it did follow on from his previous articles looking at uh, what we looked, we looked at last time, and also the one we'll look at next in this series on Renaissance hermeticism that considers the new term 
Platonic Orientalism, a term I don't particularly like, but there's an argument for it being more accurate than uh, Hermetic in defining what was going on at, in the Renaissance. Thirdly, the interest in Hermetism among Renaissance intellects does not constitute an autonomous tradition, but was just one particular manifestation of a much more general phenomenon. Elsewhere, I have proposed to refer to it as Platonic Orientalism, the belief inherited from the patristic apologists in a very ancient wisdom tradition that supposedly originated in the Orient and had been passed on mainly through Platonism. Note Honograph and the Academy, uh, the sound, the centrality of the patristic apologists to the Renaissance Prisca Theologia and the Philosophia Perennis. The discourse has not received the recognition it deserves. A hermetic, quote-unquote, version of this ancient wisdom narrative pointed to Hermes Trismegistus in Egypt as the earliest source of divine revelation and is represented, for instance, by Lodovico Lazzarelli. An alternative Zoroastrian version pointed to Zoroaster in Persia and is represented inter alia by Gemistos Plethon and Marsilio Ficino. Finally, a mosaic version followed in the footsteps of the patristic apologists and pointed to Moses among the Hebrews. This last form of Platonic Orientalism took the form of Christian Kabbalah, due to Giovanni Pico della Mirandola's claim that the original wisdom had, in fact, been the divine Kabbalah real, revealed at Mount Sinai as a secret wisdom for the priestly elite next to the public law for the people of Israel. In short, what Yeats presented as the Hermetic tradition was in fact a Zoroastrian or Mosaic interpretation of Platonic Orientalism, and precisely the Hermetic interpretation was written out of her narrative. So Dr. Honoroff is pointing out that <clears throat> Francis Yeats in fact excluded the thing that she was trying to codify, or excluding the what was unique about Hermeticism as she defined the grand narrative of what the Hermetic tradition meant historically. Because, you know, if we see all these other parallels going on in Zoroastrianism and Mosaic Judaism, well, that does sort of change uh, things from being primarily Hermetic and coming out of this one core Hermetic series of documents as revolutionary to the Italian Renaissance and the intellectual and spiritual thought of that time. That if you see a multiplicity of sources, you can't just take one of them and cherry pick it and say, oh, see, this this is what defines that period when, in fact, there's a whole bunch of things that actually were doing a relatively similar action upon culture and thought. Finally, moving beyond Yeats's narrative and its influence, many later scholars have added further confusion to the notion of a hermetic tradition by failing to distinguish clearly between the philosophical hermetica in the Renaissance and their operative or technical counterparts, especially alchemy, traditionally known as the science of Hermes, and to a lesser degree astrology and natural magic. If any text can become hermetic, merely by virtue of being attributed to Hermes Trismegistus, while texts with perfectly similar contents that happen to be attributed to some other authority are thereby excluded from the Hermetic tradition, the terminology becomes an empty shell. 
In the rest of this article, I will be focusing exclusively on the transmission and reception of the philosophical Hermetica. If Hermeticism, or the Hermetic tradition, is better discarded as a meaningful category in the study of Renaissance culture, this certainly does not mean that the 15th-16th century transmission and reception of the Hermetic writings loses any of its interest or importance. On the contrary, if we get rid of the inherited myths and misperceptions that adhere to this overworked terminology, this will allow us to focus with more clarity on what really took place. For referring to the entirely legitimate and important topic of the transmission and reception of the philosophical Hermetica specifically, I would propose to henceforth use the term Hermetism as distinct from Hermeticism. And there's a note there um, referencing Hanegraaff's article, essay on Lodovico Lazzarelli. What is it that Renaissance readers were reading? In the remainder of this article, we shall be focusing on a question that would seem to have been neglected but is important to investigate in this context. Did the Renaissance admirers of Hermes Trismegistus in fact understand the message that the authors of the Philosophical Hermetica had sought to impress upon their readers? If the answer to this question turns out to be yes, then we might still be dealing with a specific tradition of Hermetism passed on from antiquity to the Renaissance, although this tradition will surely look quite different from Francis Yates's Hermetic tradition. On the other hand, if the answer is no, then it cannot be said that the transmission and reception of the Hermetica resulted in a tradition in any meaningful sense of the word. We are then left with only a Renaissance discourse about Hermes. I know at this point some people are thinking, oh no, this is a threat to my understanding of the Yeatsian view of the Hermetic tradition and its importance in, in the development of science. But uh, look at what also the scholarship brings into relief. If, if we follow Honograph's train of thinking and his arguments, what that also frees us from is the idea that there was this Hermetic movement that brought magic to the fore at that time, through the discovery of the Corpus Hermeticum, but we get to realize that her marginalization of people like Lazarelli and, and Cornelius Agrippa and the magical texts of the uh, Picatrix and uh, Asclepius lets us know that there was more common magic going on, that, that the hermetism didn't own the magical revolution. And so we regain an understanding of the importance of these other players and these other texts that were marginalized by Francis Yates's reading. Before exploring the central question just formulated, we should be clear about the background knowledge or background assumptions about Hermes Trismegistus that were already available to Renaissance readers on the eve of Ficino's translation. These seem to fall under two heads. Firstly, the idea that Hermes Trismegistus was a supreme authority in the domain of the so-called occult sciences was, of course, nothing new in the 15th century. As already mentioned, he had been known for many centuries as the author of the textual corpus that is often referred to as the operative or technical Hermetica. 
for an overview of that, see uh, Hermetic Literature, Literature 11 in Lucentini and Peron Campani, and many contributions to Lucentini, Pari, and Peron Campani in the book Hermetism. Where were we? The disputed question was whether such knowledge was licit or not, particularly in view of the obvious resonance between astral magic and the animation of statues praised by Hermes in the otherwise non-operative but philosophical Asclepius. This is what made the Asclepius 23-24, 37-38 so controversial that Francis Yates got seduced into presenting those passages as the core content of the philosophical Hermetica. Secondly, Hermes's status as one of the most ancient proponents of ancient wisdom and a pagan prophet of Christian doctrine was hardly new either. He had already been mentioned in this capacity by Lactantius and Pseudo-Augustine, Quidvaltius, followed by a range of Christian authors through the Middle Ages. Um, for some of you who might not know, when someone's referred to as like Pseudo-Augustine or Pseudo-Dionysius, it's the same process that we see going on in the Epistles of St. Paul in the New Testament. The, the later epistles were not written by Paul, but attributed to him in honor of him, just like Pseudo-Augustine is people writing in the spirit of Augustine. Um, it's sort of like covering a, a, a pop song as a cover artist these days. It, it, it's not a secret that you didn't write the song, whether you give credit or not. If someone, if someone sings the song, Hey Jude, they don't need to remind everyone alive that this is a cover of the Beatles. We all know that. So it's sort of like that, though sometimes you would make mention that it is pseudo or in, in honor of. In short, it was against the background of an already well-established reputation, whether positive, negative, or ambivalent, that Cosmo de' Medici expressed to the young Ficino his desire to read the newly discovered works of Hermes Trismegistus before his death, giving them priority even over Plato. Cosmo must have expected great things from the Pymander, not just another reaffirmation of Hermes's wisdom or reassurance about his orthodoxy, but some new spiritual insight or revelation that might help him in making his imminent transition from this world to the next. What, then, did he find? What, indeed, could have been found? Is it, it is at this point that the situation gets very complicated. To get an idea of what Cosmo and later Renaissance intellectuals were reading, nothing might seem more natural than to consult the first edition of the Corpus Hermeticum, published as Liber de Potestate et Sapientiae Dei, or Pymander, in Treviso, in 1471. After all, this is the famous edition that has been highlighted by countless scholars as the very fond et origo of Renaissance Hermeticism. However, when the Italian scholar Maurizio Campanelli began reading the 1471 Treviso edition closely in 2002, he made a surprising and disconcerting discovery. As he formulates it in his groundbreaking recent study on Ficino's Pymander, the number of passages of which I failed to really understand the significance followed one another at a disquieting pace. It's from Gentile and Campanelli, Premessa, X. So, tenth page of the premise of that book. In other words, much of the Latin just did not make any sense. Initially, the suspicion fell on Ficino himself. Could it be 
that his translation for Cosmo, finished in 1463, had been as bad as this edition would seem to suggest. However, a crucial manuscript from 1466, heavily annotated with corrections in Ficino's own hand, showed otherwise. Campanelli's meticulous reconstruction eventually led him to a different conclusion. Ficino himself never tried to get the Pymander printed, which makes one wonder how important he really found it. And in 1471, Treviso edition is the unauthorized initiative of two humanists, the Flemish Gerard van der Ley, Gerardo de Lisa, and his Italian colleague Francesco Rolandello, who seemed to have provided the manuscript. But somehow something went awfully wrong. It would appear that the printers were working under such heavy time constraints that they made countless errors as well as corrections that actually trivialized the text, and neither Vanderlei nor Rolandello seems to have taken the trouble to check and correct the proofs. As a result, the 1471 Treviso edition of the Pymander is, in Campanelli's wording, nothing less than an authentic textual disaster based upon scandalous negligence. The troubling fact is that precisely this butchered version of the Corpus Hermeticum has become the basis for the great majority of later editions throughout the Renaissance. See figure 1, and there's a bunch of, there's a diagram of, of edition translate, uh, translations. Again, check out this art, this essay yourself on uh, online. Unfortunately, academia.edu is as corrupt as that business is, and it's the source for academic stuff. I hope we can, academics can figure out a better way to do things that doesn't screw us over as much, but we shall see. So there's a bunch of editions from Venice, 1481, 1491, 1505, 1516, 1549, and Basel, 1551. This does not mean that the text remained unchanged, for the problems with the Latin translation did not go unnoticed, especially since the 1494 edition by Jacques Lefebvre de Taple. Various editors tried to improve the text as best they could, thereby creating a wide range of variant readings of an original that had already been wholly corrupt in the first place. What then about other editions? The second was published in Ferrara on the 8th of January, 1472, just a few weeks after the Treviso edition, and is based upon a different manuscript. But although it is much more reliable, it seems to have remained a standalone edition without much further influence. The ninth edition, Florence 1513, was based upon yet another manuscript and became the basis for two later editions, the 11th, Basel, 1532, edited by Michael Isengrin, and the 16th, Krakow, 1585, edited by Annabelle Rosselli, with very lengthy commentaries. And finally, not counting vernacular versions, we have three editions independent of Ficino's text, the 13th edition consists of the first publication of the Greek original by Adrian Turnib, Paris 1554, together with a version of Ficino's Latin translation heavily corrected and rewritten by Turnib on the basis of the Greek, but still recognizably Ficino's. The 15th was a new Latin translation by François-Foy de Candal, Bordeaux 1574, and finally the 17th was yet another new translation by Francesco Patrizzi, Ferrara, 1591. 
note um, Campanelli's Mercury Trismegisti Pimander. So what we are dealing with is a great number of Corpus Hermeticum editions full of variant readings next to an even greater number of surviving manuscripts of Ficino's Pimander, those that were used for the 1471 Treviso edition and the 1472 Ferrara edition, however, are no longer extant. Based upon an extremely thorough comparison of all this material, Campanelli finally selected 15 manuscripts as a reliable basis for reconstructing Ficino's original translation. This version is the closest we will ever get to the text that Cosimo was reading. It was published by Campanelli in a meticulous critical edition in 2011, and that is the Mercuri Trismegisti Permander. Having established what was and what was not accessible to Renaissance readers interested in the wisdom of Hermes, we can now begin investigating whether the original religious message of the philosophical Hermetica was transmitted with any degree of accuracy to 15th and 16th century intellectuals. Part 3. Ficino's Reading of Hermetism What was that message? In a large article published in 2008 in the International Journal of the Platonic Tradition, that is, see Honograph Altered States of Knowledge, I provided a detailed analysis that takes issue with many details in currently available modern translations, English, French, German, Italian, Dutch. While the argument cannot be reproduced here, it relies on the assumption, partly inspired by Garth Fowden's analysis in the Egyptian Hermes, 1986, that the surviving treatises of the Corpus Hermeticum must be placed in a hierarchical order to be fully understood. We are dealing with a hermetic paideia that comprises several successive degrees of initiation. <laughs> Many hermetic treatises would seem to fall under the category referred to in the corpus as general and further discourses in the Greek uh, genikoi logoi exodiakoi logoi and are concerned essentially with the groundwork of strictly philosophical knowledge that any pupil was supposed to master. Only after having done so could he embark on a process of initiation into successively higher levels of knowledge and bodily spiritual transformation that went far beyond rational philosophy and discursive language. I argue that CH1 describes the initial stage of that process, CH13 describes its logical continuation, and the treatise De Egdoadi et Eniare, discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945 and therefore unavailable to Renaissance readers, describes its final culmination. The argument in the rest of this article will ultimately have to stand or fall with the correctness of this analysis, for which I must refer the reader to my original article, which is probably one actually I should cover next uh, before the uh, Platonic Orientalism one. What I, if you couldn't tell, what I'd really like is for this academic knowledge, in particular around the Renaissance and the Hermetic tradition, to enter into the common dialogue and discourse of especially those uh, Hermetic adepts out there who uh, know so much about the tradition but might not know about these recent, relatively extremely recent developments in scholarship and understanding of the history and texts. Let us begin with the strong emphasis on knowledge that is evident from the very first lines of the Greek Poimandras, CH1. The unnamed visionary 
usually identified as Hermes, describes here how he fell into a kind of trance-like state in which an enormous being appeared to him and asked him right away, What do you want to hear and see? What do you want to learn and understand? Chapter 11 Quid es quod et audire et intueri desideras? Quid es quod discere et qua intelligere cupus? That's from the Campanelli edition. So here in, in what follows, I refer he will refer to Campanelli's critical edition of Ficino's original, but I won't mention any substantial divergences except for simple spelling variants with the 1471 Treviso edition. Unsurprisingly, Hermes' first question is, Who are you? The being then introduces himself as Poimandris, the mind of divine power or in Latin, mens divine potenti. Who knows what Hermes wants and is always and everywhere with him? Hermes responds that he wants to learn about the nature of things and know God. Cupio rerum naturum discere demque cogniscere. It is highly characteristic of the philosophical Hermetica that he is therefore not just interested in knowledge about God, but asks for information about the world as well. I find it crucially important to emphasize that Poimandris answers Hermes's question, or rather his two questions, one about the world and one about God, not by giving a didactic sermon, but by showing him directly. That is super cool. Note on the importance of this point, see Hanegraaff's article again, Altered States of Knowledge. First, he causes him to see in his mind's eye how the world has come into existence, and then he holds Hermes' gaze for a long time until the penny finally drops. Hermes realizes that he is looking at himself, divine light, looking at divine light. It is only after these two direct visions have passed that Poimandris proceeds to explain them in words. This procedure is consistent with the frequent emphasis in various parts of the Corpus Hermeticum, at least one of which is missing entirely from the 1471 edition, as will be seen, on direct interior vision with the eyes of the heart or the mind. Note, for example, in chapter 411 of, again, of the Poimanders, eyes of the heart, translated by Ficino as internal eyes, oculisque internis, in the Campanelli edition, and also chapter 10, 4-5, the mind's eye, mentis oculis, or mensis if you're ecclesiastical Latin, Ficino 1471, mensis oculis. Chapter 13.3, the original can be translated as, By gazing with bodily sight, you do not understand what I am. I am not seen with such eyes. Translation from Copenhaver. By, but the entire sentence, um, Cernis me oculus fili, quando vero meditaris intensis corpore atque aspectu non oculus hisque vidior, is missing in the 1471 Treviso edition. Chapter 13.11, I no longer picture things with the sight of my eyes, but with the mental energy that comes through the powers. Translation, Copenhaver. Ficino has in that place, concipio 
non oculorum intuito sed actumentis, qui pervires intimas exercitur. Campanelli edition, 100.108 to 109 of the text. And, and just by the way, for those out there who don't have uh, even basic Latin, go grab the primer of ecclesiastical Latin. Uh, there's lots of stuff on classical Latin, but these people, of course, at this time were more familiar with ecclesiastical Latin, so that's why that's a good one to have. Um, it's it's not hard to get a basic basic understanding of it, especially since it's the father of Romance and Germanic languages, which we all come from here, mostly. And I love how, in hearing some of the different translations and their translations of those translations, you can really see that some of the stuff glossed by Ficino uh, and finally put together in, in the recent uh, composite versions that were most similar to what was uh, read by de' Medici, um, it shows variations that are seriously significant to anyone practicing any spirituality based on these texts, especially if you think of things in terms of, of astral magic and visions. Um, and I'm conflating, I know, astral magic versus astral work that we use it now in modern talk. But with the ideas of scrying, pathworking, spirit vision, all of these sort of things, the, the, the terminology here is quite significant for those of us involved in the practice of spirit, the spirituality. Throughout the corpus, the process of conveying superior knowledge about the true nature of reality is supposed to be preceded by philosophical teachings. These truths must be understood by reason first and must then be accepted as true on the authority of the teacher. In other words, the pupil receives information that can be readily communicated and understood, but its truth must ultimately be accepted on faith. Quite a few treatises of the Corpus Hermeticum, the general and further discourses referred to earlier, restrict themselves to such information. Nevertheless, it is characteristic of the Hermetic attitude that although theoretical knowledge is considered important and necessary as a preparation, it is not enough. A crucial passage in this regard occurs at the end of CH 9. Quote, if you are mindful Anuinti, Anuinti, <laughs> Aslepius, these things will seem true to you, but they will seem incredible, Apista, if you are not mindful, Agnuinti, my Greeks, my weakest things, or pardon me, to understand, Noesai, is to have faith, Pistoisai, and not to have faith, Apistasai, Apistasai, is not to understand, Menoisai, reasoned, Discourse, logos, does not get to the truth, but mind, nous, is powerful. And when it has been guided by reason, logos, up to a point, it has the means to get as far as the truth. After mind had considered all this carefully, and had discovered that all of it is in harmony with the discoveries of reason, it came to believe, and in this beautiful belief it found rest. By an act of God, then... Those who have understood find what I have been saying believable, but those who have not understood do not find it believable. That, again, is from the translation from Copenhagen with a few modifications. Again, see Hanegraaff's Altered States of Knowledge. This passage clearly describes a hierarchy of types of knowledge. Reason, logos, and faith, pistis, are necessary prolegomena. But the actual gnosis, referred to by a family of etymologically related words, 
is a gift from God, and its content can no longer be communicated through reasoned discourse, but only beheld directly by some faculty beyond the senses and reason. Note, conveniently listed by Copenhaver, who emphasizes the problem of translating the hermetic vocabulary of perception, cognition, and intuition. He continues by stating that especially problematic is the large family of words cognate with the noun nous, or mind, e.g. noeo, noema, noesis, noetos, enoia, dianoia, pronoia, etc., and with the noun gnosis, or knowledge, e.g. gignosco, gnorizo, prognosos, diagnosos, etc., the first section of this first discourse, for example, contains four of these words, thought, enoios, thinking, dianoios, no, gnonoi, and understanding, noesis. See Hermetica, page 96. Okay, so just backtracking, based on reason, logos, faith, pistis, and gnosis, we're considering the knowledge that can only come beyond reason and the faculties of our senses. So, however, if we now compare this passage with Vicino's translation, we make some surprising discoveries. First of all, it is important to note that the negation, not, in Copenhaver's translation, is based upon an emendation by Arthur Darby Nock, who, following Zielinski, and for perfectly convincing reasons, changed mu, or moi, in the manuscript into u. Um, see Copenhaver. Hermetica, most modern translations have adopted this emendation. An exception is Salomon van Oyen and W. Wharton, Way of Hermes, 45. And the passage there is, My discourse leads to the truth, the mind is great, etc. Since the negation does not occur in Ficino's Pymander, which is does not achieve the mind, does not result in the mind, um, it's funny how these little things saying, you know, uh, can make all the difference in interpreting a text. It's it's no small thing when when we say an older translation might have misled or given someone the wrong idea of what it was actually talking about, because the difference between something does not achieve this or does achieve this is huge. And let me say, uh, since my background is in biblical scholarship in Hebrew, Aramaic primarily, if we had that many versions of early biblical texts, we'd have a lot of problems. But we actually don't have that many versions of biblical texts. Um, they're much more consistent than the, the plurality that we see uh, amongst the Corpus Hermeticum in such a short period of time which is sort of paralleled in stuff, if you see how many versions of the Book of Mormon there is in a very short period of time. While with uh, a lot of older texts, what we have is what we have, and those are that's all that exists. Okay, so going back, since the negation does not appear in Ficino's Pymander, he had no other option but to try somehow to translate the sense, sentence in a positive sense. Sermo sequidem meus ad veritatum usque cucurit. The results are far-reaching. The word logos no longer, now no longer means reason discourse in general, but is seen as referring simply to the discourse, sermo. And that's so see Camp, the Campanelli edition for that, and uh, also as rendered by Copenhaver, uh, uh, who seemed to have chosen to combine both possibilities mentioned by Nock and Festugiere, i.e. discourse and reason. See Nock and Festugiere, uh, 
Corpus Hermeticum, Volume 1, page 105, note 36, Discourse, Pare sans envie long. No, I'm not going to do all that French right there because French is also weak for me. But it's worth noting that uh, in the French, the word intuition is used in that translation of the text. So we've moved away from the idea of Logos being a reasoned discourse delivered um, by Hermes to Asclepius um, to just the idea of a discourse, a sermon given to Asclepius, and which he assures him will lead to the truth. As a further result, there is no longer an opposition between reasoned discourse, logos, and the superior power of mind, nous, either. Ficino simply starts a new sentence, which states that the human mind is powerful and repeats once again that Hermes' discourse will lead to the truth. Mens quoque ampla et a sermone ad certum quidem deducta veritatum attigit. It is important to be clear about the effect of all of this. To a reader like Cosmo de' Medici, and to later readers of Ficino's Pimander, there was nothing left now to suggest that reasoned discourse is limited and must give way to some super-rational gnosis. Instead, the passage has been reduced to no more than a conventional affirmation on Hermes' part that his teachings lead to the truth. Yeah, the idea that, that, you can, that the text is saying logical discourse will take you to the truth versus the idea that you have to go beyond logical discourse and your senses to find the truth. Very, very different things to say indeed. Particularly clear examples of the original hermetic message of Gnosis as superior to reason discourse. Uh, there's a lot of people out there who are going to like this. <laughs> I'm going to say it again because it's so crucial. Particularly clear examples of the original hermetic message of Gnosis as superior to reasoned discourse are found in the next treatise, CH10. In section 9, we find the basic point stated succinctly and without ambiguity. Gnosis, gnosis is the goal, telos, of episteme. Episteme's knowledge, again, sort of. Gnosis de estin epistemes de totelos. Garth Fowden has emphasized the importance of such statements for understanding the hermetic message. See Fowden, Egyptian Hermes 101. But unfortunately, it seems to have been lost entirely on Ficino. <laughs> so yeah, this is all stuff Francis Yates didn't know. Similarly to the modern translations by Nock and Fustigieri, Copenhaver and Salomon, he simply writes cognitio scientiae terminus, and scientia, in turn, is a gift from God, de donum. Again, it is clear that he missed the specific connotations of gnosis. A bit earlier in the same treatise, the pupil says that Hermes's teachings have filled him with a good and very beautiful vision that almost blinds him. But Hermes responds that the ultimate vision is even more profound. Quote, we are still too weak now for this sight. We are not yet strong enough to open our minds, eyes, and look on the incorruptible, incomprehensible beauty of that good. In the moment when you have nothing to say about it, you will see it. For the knowledge of it is divine silence and suppression of all the senses. One who has understood it can understand nothing else, nor can one who has looked on it look on anything else or hear of anything else, nor can he move his body in any way. He stays still 
all bodily senses and motions forgotten. That's from CH 10, 5-6 in the Copenhaver translation. Please note that nothing is said about the content of this gnosis. The text emphasizes that not only is it utterly but beyond words, but it requires the suppression of all bodily senses as well. We already saw that in CH1, the pupil sees a vision whilst being in a sleep-like trance, and here too we get the picture of superior knowledge conveyed in an entranced condition. Indeed, Hermes introduced the passage by the observation that those able to drink somewhat more deeply of a vision often fall asleep, moving out of the body toward a sight most fair, and continued by emphasizing that only when all sensory knowledge is forgotten is it possible to somehow behold, not strictly speaking, the vision of the ultimate, for it is not visual, but something that is somehow perceived by a different spiritual sense. Again, there is the emphasis on the fact that God cannot be perceived by the senses, described by words, or analyzed by reason. See, uh, uh, contrasted with the chapter uh, 10.9, the clearest examples of the hermetic emphasis on gnosis as a superior type of ecstatic knowledge beyond the senses, words, and reason appear in the Discourse on the 8th and the 9th, discovered at Nag Hammadi in 1945, and therefore not known in the Renaissance. An explicitly initiatic text, like CH 13, it vividly describes how teacher and pupil give stammering expression to a direct non-visionary vision, which they are utterly unable to express in words. For how the discourse on the 8th and the 9th transforms our understanding of the Hermetic message, see in particular Mahe, Hermes, Hermes, et O, Egypte, Fauden, Fauden's a great one, one of my favorite scholars, Egyptian Hermes, and Hanagraph, Altered States. The ritual dimension of the Hermetic Paideia is central to the recent monograph by Anna van den Kerchov, La Voix de Hermes. It is not necessary here to go into the details of how Ficino translated the passage, although these are interesting. More relevant to my present argument is a point that might seem somewhat trivial at first sight, and may have been overlooked precisely for that reason, the similarity in terms of content with Platonic descriptions of divine beauty. Take Diotima's famous description from Plato's Symposium, here in the translation by Michael Joyce. And before I, I give you this bit from Plato, um, the Latin that I skipped over and the issues of what was and wasn't said in the Ficino's 1471 edition is really worth looking at in the footnote. So I encourage you to, this is an article that every hermeticist should really take seriously along with the other uh, Hanegraaff ones I've covered and will cover in this, uh, this series on focusing on the Italian Renaissance. So from the Symposium by Plato, and now Socrates... There bursts upon him that wondrous vision which is the very soul of the beauty he has toiled so long for. It is an everlasting loveliness which neither comes nor goes, which neither flowers nor fades, for such beauty is the same on every hand, the same then as now, here as there, this way as that way, the same to every worshipper as it is to every other. Nor will his vision of the beautiful take the form of a face or of hands." or of anything that is of the flesh. 
It will be neither words nor knowledge, nor a something that exists in something else, such as a living creature, or the earth, or the heavens, or anything that is, but subsisting of itself and by itself in an eternal oneness, while every lovely thing partakes of it in such a sort that, however much the parts may wax and wane, it will be neither more nor less, but still the same inviolable whole. Parallels such as these are relevant, because for a Platonist and believer in the Prisca Theologia such as Ficino, the Hermetic passage would be quite obviously about the very same experience evoked by a Diotima. I want to make a little academic point here. It's very important to not confuse two different um, ways of thinking. It's very different to say that this passage is, this Platonic passage is the same experience or describing the same experience as the Pymander. That's not what's being said. What's being said is, as Hanegraaff imagines Ficino, in his time and place, knowing what he knew, it would, for Ficino, describe something that he would perceive as the same. It's super simple to conflate those two things, but the differences between an understanding that would loosely equivocate two things that might not be describing the same thing at all, because they might not be, um, versus saying that they would, in Ficino's mind, be describing the same thing. Both passages speak of a vision that is not a vision, that is, it is perceived by the mind's eye rather than in visual form by the eyes of the flesh, by means of which one perceives the ultimate beauty of the divinely good and true. This reality is called incorruptible by Hermes and described as neither coming nor going, neither flowering nor fading by Plato. Hermes says that it cannot be expressed by words, and Plato writes that it is neither words nor knowledge. And finally, both texts make clear that it is different from anything that can be perceived by the bodily senses. The only minor difference is that the Hermetic passage emphasizes somewhat more strongly that the person who has the vision will be in a trance-like state at that moment. But even in that respect, as a Platonist, Platonist such as Ficino, familiar with the Phaedrus, would have no problem drawing the connection with Plato's discussion of the erotic frenzy, see below. My point here is that once Ficino's Plato translations had become available, Renaissance readers would have no particular reason to interpret the Corpus Hermeticum passage in terms of some specifically hermetic appeal to Gnosis. Most probably what they believed to be reading was a reference to the Platonic vision this confusion uh, happening in the Renaissance uh, as a result of Ficino's work is, is sort of, I think, what Hanegraaff is talking about when he says that Francis Yates's interpretation of Ficino and the Hermetic tradition cuts out what is Hermetic because of this very confusion. In Ficino's translations, we have a conflation of the Hermetic understanding through the corpus with the Plato's uh, visions in the Phaedrus. Um, so we lose what is different about the two. <laughs> we lose what Aristotle would find most interesting in a way. The emphasis on Gnosis as a superior kind of knowledge is particularly strong in the most explicit initiatic text of the Corpus Hermeticum, CH 13. Here Hermes refers somewhat mysteriously to the wisdom of understanding in silence. 
understand, it always makes me think of, you know, the Egyptian god Harpocrates and our own tradition around silence and the sign of silence to pass over Kronzon and the abyss. And emphasizes that the secret of the lineage between God and man cannot be taught. When Tat keeps pressing him for the secret of spiritual rebirth, he finally responds by stating that something very strange has happened to him. Quote, What can I say, my child? I have nothing to tell except this. Seeing within me an immaterial vision that came from the mercy of God, I went out of myself into an immortal body, and now I am not what I was before. I have been born in mind. This thing cannot be taught, therefore I no longer care about that composed form that used to be mine. Color, touch, or size I no longer have. I am a stranger to them. Now you see me with your eyes, my child, but by gazing with bodily sight you do not understand what I am. I am not seen with such eyes, my child. That's C.H. Uh, 13.3 and the Copenhaver translation with modifications for which you should see honographs again, altered states of knowledge. Ficino's Latin does state that Hermes's mortal body has been changed into an immortal one, in corpus sum immortale translatus. That the mystery of this transformation cannot be taught, hoc mysterium non docitur, and that his new constitution cannot be seen, touched, or measured. Very significantly, however, the entire closing sentence of the passage, Now you see me, my child, about incorporeal vision, is absent from the 1471 edition of the Pomander altogether. Wow, that's so hardcore. The sentence did not occur correctly in Ficino's Greek manuscript in the second edition of 1472, and is reintegrated properly by Campanelli in his reconstruction of the text. Clearly, therefore, this is a particularly glaring example of the corrupt state of the 1471 edition. The result is that Hermes' striking emphasis on transcendental vision was largely lost to the readers of the Editio Princeps and all the later editions based upon it. So this is just one of the things I love about scholarship and the importance that we need to keep the scholarship alive and well. Because think about it, without this, all this work being done, we'd still think that the Corpus Hermeticum-like uh, Cosmo de' Medici got to read it from Ficino was really perhaps just a rehashing or another version of uh, Platonic, Platonic vision and, and spiritual experience, which was grounded in reason, rather than the idea that there's some sort of trance-like state that you had to go into, that you had to move beyond all of your physical senses and your physical eyes and have some experience that went beyond reason into true gnosis. That idea would be absent were it not for this work by academics and translators and serious scholars funded by universities and whatever students like you and me who help support their work. It can make sense how Francis Yates could look at the reasoned discourse interpretation of the poor translation and see how hermeticism led to the development of science be, you know, because cutting out the idea that we had moved, that the purpose was to move beyond reason into gnosis beyond senses, that's a very different spiritual message than the sort of early proto-scientific development argument of the hermetic tradition leading into the Enlightenment. It's, a, it's just worlds apart.
Further on in the 13th treatise, Tat is granted the spiritual rebirth he has been asking for. He describes how he has now gained the superior power of mental perception, referred to earlier, by means of which he now experiences a kind of cosmic unity with all that exists. And note that the very same experience had been promised to Hermes in the impressive cosmic passage of C.H. 11, 19-20, where it was presented as indispensable for attaining true knowledge of God. And that passage in the uh, in CH eleven twenty states repeatedly that one cannot know God unless one attains this very specific type of perception. Quote, Since God has made me steadfast, Father, I no longer need picture things with the sight of my eyes, but with the mental energy that comes through the powers. I am in heaven, in earth, in water, in air. I am in animals and in plants, in the womb, before the womb, after the womb, everywhere. CH 13.11, Copenhagen translation, but Honograph here replaced tranquil with the word steadfast. Interesting. Ficino's translation leaves out Tat's mention that when he has been made steadfast, Greek aklines, but correctly renders the opposition between visual and mental perception, concipio non oculorum intuito sed actum mensis. For some reason, he translates womb as body, in corpore ante corpus atque post corpus. What we have found at this point is that Ficino's Pymander shows remarkably little concern for or understanding of the specific hermetic connotations of Gnosis, as a superior, supersensual, and suprarational knowledge of God that cannot be expressed in words, but only experienced in silence. Passages that we would nowadays see as key references in that regard, from a perspective admittedly that is strongly informed by the crucial discovery of the Discourse of the Eighth and Ninth in 1945, the Nag Hammadi Library, the collection of manuscripts, that is, which also helped us date the original Corpus Hermeticum, by the way, were treated to prior to the second century, blah, 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 were treated quite carelessly by Ficino and were usually translated in such a manner that their original connotations remained obscure or wholly invisible. These findings become somewhat easier to understand if we take into account that Ficino's model in translating the Corpus Hermeticum was the Latin Aslepius. It so happens that the Aslepius is extremely poor in references to Gnosis as understood above, and never really goes beyond the level of philosophical, or if one prefers, theological discourse. The text contains extensive discussions about the true nature of and relation between God, the world, and man, but these remain of a theoretical kind. One will search in vain for any direct reference to a supra-rational Gnosis, or, for that matter, for references to ecstatic or trance-like states as a condition for receiving such Gnosis. The simple fact is, then, that Ficino had no particular reason to expect that he would find in the Corpus Hermeticum some doctrine different from what he already knew from the Aslepius, pious theoretical reflections on the nature of God, man, and the universe, because he did not know what to look for. He essentially missed the specificity of the Hermetic message, which claims that such rational knowledge, although important in its own right, must ultimately be transcended in an ecstatic mental vision beyond visual imagery, reason, or language. Still, we cannot hold Ficino entirely blameless for failing 
to get the message, for it was in fact possible for readers in the later 15th century to gain a much more accurate understanding. We know this from the case of Lodovico Lazzarelli, 1447 to 1500, who translated the final three treatises of the Corpus Hermeticum, not included in Ficino's Pymander, which contains only CH 1 through 14, and also left us an original neo-hermetic treatise called Crater Hermetis. Lazzarelli did not have to rely only on Ficino's Pymander for his knowledge of Corpus Hermeticum 1 through 14, for he was using an independent Greek manuscript as well, and clearly studied it very carefully. In sharp contrast with Ficino, it appears to have been obvious to Lazzarelli that the Hermetic message was focused entirely on the search for true felicity by means of self-knowledge and knowledge of God. Note, uh, for Lazzarelli's life and work in critical editions with annotated translations of his hermetic writings, see Honograph and Boothorn, Lodovico, Lazzarelli. Also, this can be proven from certain details in Lazzarelli's references to the Corpus Hermeticum in his Crater Hermetis. Again, see the aforementioned book. The very structure and central message of his Crater Hermetis shows that he fully understood the crucial hermetic tenet that Reasoned discourse leads only to a certain point, but must be transcended in an ecstatic experience beyond rational understanding. Um, for that reference, see Hanegraaff's article, Lodovico Lazzarelli and the Hermetic Christ. Nothing suggests that Ficino recognized the Corpus Hermeticum as conveying such a doctrine. That he shows so little sensitivity to the specific connotations of gnosis and related terms in the corpus always translated simply as cognitio, certainly reflects the influence of the Aesclepius as a model, and furthermore of discourse during the Renaissance. The terminology was associated far too strongly with the universally rejected heresy of the Gnostics. That makes sense. So there's a bias at work there that uh, affected textual translations. The very first apology of Gnosticism, Abraham von Frankenberg's Theophrastia Valentiniana, dates from 1629 and was published by Gottfried Arnold only as late as 1703. Before that time, one could not expect a Christian writer such as Ficino to use the term gnosis in a positive sense with reference to his own beliefs. Indeed, Lazzarelli does not do so either. Like Ficino, he always uses the term cognitio. It's a huge point. Um, note, it's, it is significant that Lazzarelli, in fact, misrepresents from the beginning of the Pymanders, uh, chapter 1.3, in order to emphasize its relevance to knowledge of the self. He introduces that theme with reference to the Delphic Apollo's Nothi Suton, then introduces Hermes, and finally states that it was in answer to the question, how would I be able to know myself? that Pymander told Hermes, Embrace me with your mind, and I will teach you everything you wish to know, and proceeded to teach him. Actually, Hermes had asked Pymanders for knowledge about God and the world, not self-knowledge. Another excellent, important point. Part 4. The Ecstatic Plato In spite of the factors mentioned above, it is still somewhat remarkable that Ficino missed the message of the philosophical Hermetica, and her philosophical is in quotations there because you could also call it theological. Um, this is one of the key points in argument between philosophy and theology. A lot of people who think that they are distinctly separate are 
always wrong because most of the sources they point to as core philosophical antecedents are just as easily categorized as theology as philosophy. It's a very, very new um, and artificial distinction between the two. Actually, once I asked my supervisor, I said, we, you know, after having amassed a breadth of knowledge on all of this and gone ad nauseum into the subject, I said to him, what really, I said, what, 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 what is the difference ultimately between philosophy and theology? And he, he looked at me and smiled like I had finally asked a good question. And this, is a, this was a philosopher um, who also had a degree in theology, but both. And he said, well, I guess you could say that the difference is that theology is just a bit more optimistic. <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. So, philosophical hermetica, given the fact that the basic idea, although expressed in a different context and with different terminology, became quite important to his mature metaphysics. As early as 1943, Paul Oscar Christeller pointed out the essentials in a brilliant chapter of his classic and still readable study, The Philosophy of Marsilio Ficino. The chapter is devoted to what Christeller called the internal experience, presented by him as nothing less than the living center of Ficino's metaphysics. See Christeller, Philosophy of Marsilio Ficino. Christeller's chapter discussed the frequent references in the Florentine philosopher's oeuvre to a heightened state of mind experienced independently of and even in opposition to all outward events bearing in itself its own certainty, and characterized by its notic claim of disclosing reality. Ficino's emphasis on such experiences has its foundation in a metaphysical framework basic to the Hermetic writings and shared by the entire Prisca Theologia tradition. In his Platonic Theology, Ficino would describe it as follows. Quote, As the Pythagoreans and Platonists believe, during the whole time the sublime soul lives in this base body, our mind, as though it were ill, is tossed to and fro and up and down, in a kind of perpetual restlessness, and is always asleep and delirious, and the individual moments, actions, and passions of mortal men are nothing but the dizzy spells of the sick, dreams of the sleeping, deliriums of the insane. But while all are deceived, usually those are less deceived who at some time, as happens occasionally during sleep, become suspicious and say to themselves, perhaps those things are not true which now appear to us. Perhaps we are now dreaming. And the Latin is cumembrum totum id tempus quod sublimis animus in infimo agit corpore mentem, nostrum velit egram perpetua quarum in quitudine hac et illec sursum deusumve iactare, nec non dormitare sempre delirare Pythagorici et platonici arbitrantur singulasque mortalium motionis, Actiones, passiones, nihil esse aliud quum vertigines egrotantium dormientium somnia insanorum deliramenta. Hmm. Well, so exactly the same premise is found in the philosophical Hermetica. We need to wake up from the, our world of deluded perception and become aware of a divine reality that is so different from it that reason cannot understand it, 
The senses cannot perceive it, and words are powerless to express it. Such waking up is understood quite literally as an instance of psychological healing. It cures us from the sick delirium of the insane, as Ficino puts it, and makes us sober and clear-minded. It is thus that we gain knowledge of what really is, and can no longer be deluded by chimeras. The basic paradigm for such knowledge Ficino seems to have found not in Hermes, but in Plato himself, and more specifically in the dialogues concerned with love. In, 19, in 1468, after Ficino had finished his translation of Plato's complete works and felt a need to summarize the essence of Platonic teaching, he did so by writing a treatise on love. And this commentary of, on the symposium, popularly known as De Amore, is in fact an excellent summary of Ficino's essential beliefs. See on De Amore, its doctrine and its context, and see Honograph, Under the Mantle of Love, uh, article he did. Um, Ficino's translation of, on De Amore, and Plato is one of the first things I read back in the day. It's a good one. The symposium, of course, contains the description of Diotima's famous transvisible vision, quoted above, and presents as it as the ultimate goal of the soul's ascent. As suggested above, nothing requires us to assume that a Platonist like Ficino would have seen any difference between such a Platonic vision, on the one hand, and references to superior knowledge as found in chapter 10, on the other hand. For Ficino, such knowledge was certainly not just an abstract and theoretical concept in the context of a philosophical metaphysics. On the contrary, the Platonic theology held the promise of an actual, concrete, and highly personal experience that the pious philosopher might hope to be granted one day as the ripe fruit of his spiritual contemplation. And, as in the Hermetic writings, the reception of such superior knowledge required an unusual, ecstatic, or trance-like state. Ficino did not need the Corpus Hermeticum to draw such connections. He could find them in the Phaedrus, and more specifically in Plato's description of the so-called Platonic madnesses, or frenzies, mania in Greek, translated into Latin as furor. Note on that, um, see, is Plato's Phaedrus 244a to 245c, and also 249d, if you want to look in Phaedrus for the references. Socrates had explained to Phaedrus that there are four heaven-sent ways of being transported into a heightened state of mind, enabling a person to perceive higher things that remained hidden to normal consciousness. Firstly, we can be put into an erotic frenzy by beholding physical beauty, this awakens in us the desire for the ultimate and perfect beauty beyond physicality, as described by Diotima in the Symposium passage. Secondly, there is the prophetic frenzy, known from cases such as the Delphic Oracle or the Sibyls, who seem to be out of their minds but actually have a superior vision of things to come. Thirdly, there is the hieratic frenzy induced by religious ritual, prayer and worship, which again induce a changed consciousness that brings us into contact with divine realities. And finally, there is the poetic frenzy. Poetry and music as well can induce ecstatic states in which we intuit realities not accessible to the normal, rational mind.
Ficino referred to Socratic frenzies in many places of his work and made occasional references to rare moments of ecstasy in which one might actually be granted a direct intuition of divine reality. Normal bodily functions, he implies, keep us from having such an experience, and if the experience occurs, therefore, it has the effect of temporarily suspending vital activity. In other words, if the supreme experience would last more than just a moment, the body would die. Hence, Ficino emphasizes that the moment of perfect illumination is always very short. In fact, it is like a moment out of time. For references in that, see Christeller, Philosophy of Marsilio Ficino. In Ficino's words, it remains so for only a brief while, just as a stone thrown up upwards is said to stay in the air for just that brief while between ascent and descent. See Ficino, uh, Theologia Platonica, 13.5.3. Philosophy for Ficino was therefore more than just a rational pursuit and more than an intellectual one, at least according to modern understandings of that term. Um, note. In contrast, note, uh, the standard medieval distinction between ratio and intellectus does imply a concept of intellectual understanding, which seems very close to what is here discussed under the heading of gnosis. Mm. Pay attention to that. Philosophy for Ficino was therefore more than just a rational pursuit and more than an intellectual one, at least according to the modern understandings of the term, right? Uh, intellectual understanding could only attain its ultimate goal by going beyond itself, so to speak, in a direct noetic experience, beyond verbal expression. Ficino never refers to such an experience as gnosis. But I suggest that if the authors of the philosophical Hermetica could have read his work, they would have. Part 5. Gabriel de Priu and Francois-Foy de Candel. Tracing the ecstatic motif in the Renaissance and the reception history of the Platonic frenzies more in particular would clearly lead us far beyond the confines of Hermeticism proper, or Hermetism proper. If we restrict ourselves to the reception of history of the philosophical Hermetica, it should now be clear that none of the many editions based on Ficino's translation was capable of transmitting the Hermetic doctrine of Gnosis to Renaissance readers. Note, this preliminary exploration is restricted to editions and translations. A general reception history of the philosophical Hermetica focused only on the question of superior knowledge or Gnosis would lead very far beyond what is possible in this brief article. And again, this article appeared at first in Aries in 2015, I believe. But you can find it online. The situation hardly improved even after the Greek text was first published by Francois Tourneb in 1554. Neither the new Latin translation published two decades later by Francois Foy de Candel, 1574, nor the one by Francesco Patrizzi, 17 years late after that, 1591, contain evidence of a more acute understanding of the Hermetic message. And if we look at yet another of the unusual suspects of Renaissance Hermetism, at least according to Francis Yates's narrative, we discover that while Giovanni Pico della Mirandola's Ten Hermetic Conclusiones, 1486, clearly reflect the influence of the Corpus Hermeticum, their focus is entirely theoretical and they show no interest in any concept of superior knowledge or gnosis, with or without ecstatic states of consciousness. 
which I think is very strange uh, given uh, Mirandola's Pico's interest in uh, Kabbalah. Note also, for instance, with respect to the crucial passages of CH 9.10, Foi de Candel has intelligere namque credere est, non credere autum non intelligere, sermo etenum meus adveritatum usque pervenit. That's uh, Candel's Mercurius Trismegisti Pimanders. While Patrizzi has nam intelligere est credere, non credere vero, non intelligere est, sermo enum meus pertingit usque adveritatum. That's Patrizzi's Hermetis Trismegisti Libelli Integri. As could be expected, both do insert the sentence at the end of CH 13.3, or 13.4 in Foix's numeration, that was left out by Ficino. Foi de Candel has conspice me ophili oculus dum obtutu fixe me corporeo visu consideris, ego nunc non hisce oculus conspicio ophili. And Patrizzi has cernis me ophili oculus quando vero deprehendis obnixis corpore, et visu non oculus his conspicior ophili. See also Patrizzi's translation of the passage from CH 13.11, the reference to steadfastness, is interpreted as part of the previous sentence, i.e., whoever has attained the rebirth, etc., is made steadfast by God. Stabilis a deo factus. And the next sentence reads, O pater videor mihi non visione oculorum sed virtutum intelligibili actu. In cholo esse, in terra, in mari, in ere, in animalibus esse, in stirpiribus, in utero ante uterum post uterum ubique. I know that's a lot of Latin, but it's, it's interesting to me, so I'm sure it's interesting to some other people. And if it just encourages some of you to pick up a primer of ecclesiastical Latin, more power to you. As far as I have been able to ascertain, there are very few exceptions to this disappointing lack of understanding concerning ancient hermetic spirituality among Renaissance thinkers. As we have seen, only Lazzarelli appears to have grasped the hermetic message with some degree of adequacy already during Ficino's lifetime, but his Crater Hermetis was published only in a seriously abridged version by Lefebvre de Taple in 1505, and its impact seems to have been small with the notable exception of Cornelius Agrippa, whose essential beliefs were indebted to Lazarellian hermetism much more profoundly than has been recognized so far. That's a point that I always love. For that story, fascinating as it is, I have to refer the reader to a separate publication, that is Hanegraaff's Better Than Magic essay, which we have already covered on this podcast. Apart from Lazarelli and Agrippa, I have so far found only two relatively relative exceptions to the general lack of comprehension of hermetism among Renaissance thinkers. Gabriel de Prue's French translation of the Corpus Hermeticum, published in 1549, was based upon three different editions of Ficino's Latin translation, and de Prue's, uh, notes himself that these contradicted one another in so many respects that it made him quite nervous. <laughs> and there's a bunch of French about how nervous he got. The hierarchy of types of knowledge in CH 9.10 has vanished in Dupreux as it had in Ficino. 
In the translation of CH 10.5, the original idea that perfect knowledge requires suppression of the senses is even changed by Dupreux into its opposite. He writes that we need to apply all our senses to the task. Well, that's not a difference at all, is it? Perhaps most interesting is the case of CH 13.3. Dupreux does reinsert the final line that was omitted in Ficino's translation, and his French version can be rendered as follows. Quote, what shall I say, my son? I do not know what to say, except that I beheld a true spectacle and vision that it pleased God to reveal to me by a special grace, so that I am now translated into an immortal body. Such as that I am no longer who I was before. I am made into the likeness of God's thought that was recently shown to me. It is a mystery, my son, that one should not teach just like that nor publish rashly and unthinkingly. Learn this, therefore, and see it clearly through the appearance of that element that has been created and formed, through which this mystery can easily be seen and known through one's eyes. You see that because of this element I do not take into account the first species that I have, since I have an altogether different color, texture, or limit than before. For I am now withdrawn from all those things. At present you see me with your corporeal eyes, my son. But if you are attentive with body and gaze to that on which you meditate, you no longer see with such eyes, but with internal ones, or ineternal ones. It's a sort of almost play on words there. Eternal ones or ineternal ones. Oh, it's not play on words, it's just a textual emendation that could be with such eyes, but with eternal ones or in eternal ones. So there you go. The details, eh? What we see here is the passage is interpreted in terms of a vision given to Hermes by God through a special act of grace and as an allusion, allusion, to a Christian understanding of inferior, interior rebirth or regeneration. Dupreux added a marginal note of explanation to emphasize that point. Quote, he, Hermes, shows how the process of regeneration must take place through some vision that he showed him, he, being tat, presumably. Note that just as he seems to be other than he was, without his body changing into different species than before, it is thus that must, it is thus that must happen this regeneration through the Son of God taking on a human body under which his divinity is hidden as says St. Paul in Romans 5.2. As for the passage in CH 13.11, De Proust rendered it quite nicely as follows, quote, I now see it well, my father, and understand it not through the gaze of my mortal eyes, but through the power and virtue of my understanding, working through its interior forces. I am now in heaven, in earth, in the water, in the air, in all animals, in all trees, in all bodies, both when they were made and after they will cease to exist, and finally in every place. Note that the original reference of being before the womb, in the womb, after the womb, with its hint of transmigration or reincarnation, has been silently removed. The pupil now experiences himself as being present in all bodies. <laughs> In sum, I would say that Dupreux's translation, I don't know how to say that French name at all, Preux, Dupreux, 
probably. Translation reflects a certain degree of progress in interpretation of the Hermetic passage, although it is thoroughly Christianized. We can at least see now that a process of interior rebirth is taking place. So it's not just presence in all bodies, it's an actual rebirth thing, according. And again, this, these are pagan texts being rewritten by Christians in a sense. Some years after his Latin translation, and Christians who had polemical, heretical arguments against any form of gnosis or Gnostic thought, some years after his Latin translation in 1574, Foy de Candale published an additional New French translation of the Corpus Hermeticum with very extensive commentaries under the title Le Pimandre de Mercure Trismegiste. 1579. In his interpretation of CH 9.10, he seems to suggest that the truths of faith lie beyond the domain where language, la parole, can reach. This is probably no coincidence, for in his long and verbose commentary, based upon the leading idea of a perfect consonance between the Hermetic teachings and the Christian faith, Foi de Candal now presents us with something very close to the hierarchy of knowledge originally intended in the Hermetic text. He argues that faith has its degrees and distinguishes between a first degree of simple listening and a second degree of believing and a third and highest degree of understanding and knowledge of God. <laughs> Sounds very similar to the uh, ideas from the Abramelin text. Of course, there is this whole tradition of literature that we don't have anymore, um, except by representative examples and grimoires. Quote, The third degree is knowing or understanding, which is given by God to the man who generously pursues in himself the exercise of faith, through which he advances in the knowledge of divine things, through the opening of that grand example of whom we have often spoken, and in whom man sees that which the mouth cannot speak. The eye has not seen, and the heart has not thought, as seen by St. Paul in his ecstasy, by Moses on the mountain, and by Hermes in his vision. The last reference is, of course, to the vision of Poimandras described in CH 1. Foi de Candal emphasizes that it does not involve corporeal sleep and, interestingly, makes explicit reference to the platonic terminology of divine frenzy through erotic desire. Quote, when the affection and generous will make use of their intelligible virtues with ardent desire to conceive of a subject that is greater and more worthy of veneration than they are capable of comprehending, and by this means they can be easily vanquished and subjugated even without any corporeal sleep through the intelligible virtues guided by a good will and ardent affection, as we see happen to Hermes in this place without any corporeal sleep and abnegation and suppression of the senses. Foy de Candal explains that this is how saintly persons have always been addressed by God in visions, mentioning Daniel and St. Paul as examples. In such cases, the normal bodily forces and faculties are temporarily suppressed so that they fall to the ground and nothing is left to them but, quote, the use of reason, intelligence, and knowledge, together with other, the other intelligible virtues, for which it is more than reasonable that all corporeal actions and virtues make place while keeping silence, given their dignity over above matter and all that belongs to it. That the contents of the vision go beyond normal understanding is likewise typical for true divine ecstasy, according to Foi de Candal. 
Hermes perceives a person who is, quote, boundless, which must be understood in terms of size, in terms of size, and incomprehensible, that is to say, as regards his form or representation, which are the pure qualities proper to the vision of a subject that is so marvelous that it can neither be understood by any measure or figure, nor circumscribed by the imagination, no matter how subtle. Of course, Foy de Candal is thinking entirely from a pious Roman Catholic perspective, assuming that Hermes represents the eternal Christian truth of the philosophia perennis, perennial philosophy. That's the idea that all of history and all of human thought has always led up to and will lead back to Christ. But he also does show, at last, some explicit interest in and sensitivity to the original Hermetic concept of superior knowledge, although obviously without using the term such as gnosis, which is what should probably be used. This was a modest first step at last, towards a more adequate understanding of the Hermetic message. Part 6. The End of a Grand Narrative My conclusions in the previous section do not pretend to be more than exploratory. Very important research has been done in recent years on the material transmission of Hermetic texts by means of additions and translations during the Renaissance, and such research is the indispensable foundation for everything else. But because most of his research does not go beyond the bibliographic level, we still have much to learn and discover about how the contents of the various editions and translations in fact relate to each other, or about how editors, translators, and commentators interpreted those contents from their various doctrinal or philosophical perspectives. With respect to Ficino, what I have been arguing can be summed up in one sentence. He does not seem to have understood much of the specific religious message of the philosophical Hermetica when he translated the Corpus in 1463 but he did discover a closely equivalent message in the Platonic philosophy, obviously understood by him through the lens of various other Middle and Neoplatonic authors and texts. I love that to an academic, that's a, a simple one sentence. If my analysis is more or less correct, there are several consequences. Firstly, the iconic status of the 1471 Treviso edition of Ficino's Pymander needs to be revised and re relativized. Due to its butchered condition, it must have created more confusion than clarity, and moreover, it did not bring anything new to what Renaissance thinkers already knew, or rather believed they knew, about Hermes and his message. Secondly, Renaissance hermit hermetism was actually not very hermetic at all. So the essential hermetic doctrine of salvation means, by means of a supra-rational knowledge or gnosis, was largely or completely overlooked with just a few, very few exceptions. Perhaps only Lazzarelli, followed by Agrippa, who again, Agrippa and Lazzarelli are the two that Francis Yates had to minimize in her study, if not discount almost entirely, for the sake of her grand narrative and argument of the quote-unquote hermetic tradition. It seems that Renaissance intellectuals were far more interested in aspects that are, in fact, marginal to the Corpus Hermeticum and the philosophical Hermetica generally. Notably, the idea of a venerable Prisca Theologia, and concepts of astral magic. Thirdly, it follows that we cannot speak of a hermetic tradition in any precise sense of the word, that is to say, of an actual transmission of hermetic spirituality from late antiquity to the Renaissance. That terminology should be abandoned. It is much more correct to speak of a discourse about Hermes, or as we would say in my field, trends or vogues. 
Finally, this discourse should not be seen as some autonomous entity. It makes more sense to see it as just one dimension of a much broader and more fundamental Renaissance discourse on ancient wisdom. As suggested earlier, we might refer to it as Platonic Orientalism. The idea of a very ancient spiritual wisdom transmitted by Platonism and originating not in Greece but deriving from some Oriental source. The most important candidates were Zoroaster, Hermes, and Moses, and hence we could speak of Zoroastrian, of a Zoroastrian, a Hermetic or a Mosaic variant of Platonic Orientalism. Very significantly, the Hermetic variant was defended not by Ficino but by Lazzarelli. Ficino preferred the Zoroastrian option, while Pico della Mirandola went for the Mosaic one. All of this implies a decisive final end to the grand narrative presented by Francis Yates of half a century ago. While some readers might regret this, Yates herself, in an article published in 1979, showed a healthy sense of realism and modesty in this regard. My next book will not be a Yates thesis, but only another Yates attempt at laborious digging or a signposting of fields in the hope that others will dig more deeply. That's what she said. That's, you know, we all get wiser as we get older, don't we? And so they have done indeed. If a deeper analysis of the hermetic materials and their manner of transmission implies the demise of Francis Yates's hermetic tradition, one has to believe that, whether grudgingly or not, she would approve of the fact. This is one of the greatest articles, along with a few others that I've been you know, focusing on, and I hope you enjoyed it. Please uh, check out other book recommendations from academics and scholars at occultauthors.com. Get my newsletter and link to other academic associations at esotericebooks.com. Ciao for now. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk